You are listening to the Let's Talk About Sex Trafficking Podcast. Your co-hosts, Christy Wells and Brittany Dunn, will interview survivors, industry experts, and community leaders who are committed to increasing survivor identification beyond 1%. This is the first step to ending child sex trafficking in America by 2030. Join us for real facts, real stories, and real ways you can be part of the movement to end child trafficking. Hello, my name is Brittany Dunn, and I am the COO of Safe House Project. Today, we are joined by Jasmine Grace, a survivor of sex trafficking and drug addiction. Jasmine is an effective keynote speaker, panel participant, and facilitator for trainings, workshops, and groups. She has spoken on panels at the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights in New Hampshire and at two side panels for members of the United Nations in New York. In addition, Jasmine consults with healthcare professionals, law enforcement personnel, educators, and nonprofit organizations. She advises on issues such as safe homes, program growth, curriculum development, survivor support, and peer mentorship. She is founder and director of Bags of Hope Ministries and author of The Diary of Jasmine Grace, Trafficked, Recovered, Redeemed. Thank you for being here with us today. And now I am uh, pleased to welcome my co-host, Christy Wells. Well, I am so glad to be here, and I am so glad to have you on here, Jasmine. Thank you for taking your time. We just so appreciate your survivor voice in this space as a leader, as a mentor to other survivors, as an advocate for those currently in the trafficking situation. So excited to have you on, excited to uh, chat a little bit. But first, tell us how you have been. I know you guys are buried in snow. So tell us how COVID has been and how kind of your family suggested in this season. Yeah, first, thanks for having me. We're doing okay. I mean, one day at a time, we take it as it comes. We got four kids living here with us. Some are remote learning, some are homeschooled. We got a lot of juggling pieces, plus the work that I do with the women. COVID has like a silver lining to it because now we actually have been working with more women virtually since that's kind of like the world that we oh, live in. And it opened up different doors because we used to always just think we meet the women in person, but maybe that wasn't always as effective. So we've been running groups and meeting with the women more online and it's been going good. That's amazing. I love that you have had that opportunity to figure out how you guys could innovate in this season because I think everybody had to first kind of digest the fact that COVID was actually happening and it was going to stick around, but then figure out their path forward. So to give our uh, listeners a little bit of background on you, do you mind sharing a little bit about your story as much as you feel comfortable and then really what helped you make it through your trafficking situation? Yeah, sure. I've been out of the life and clean and sober for 13 years. This year will be 14. So yeah, time flies. I've managed to have kids in between, be married, keep them all alive, like doing pretty good. (laughs) I'm proud of you for that. Every day's a win with that. Imagine just like staying sober and like being a mom is like life changing. But I didn't know I was a survivor until five years out. Hmm. So that is really important now because there's so much advocacy and work being done around the anti-trafficking movement. Women are identifying sooner. So I've seen this change. I've been doing the anti-trafficking movement for at least seven years. So women are coming out in knowing that they're survivors early on. And they're actually saying to therapists and even to mentors, 
I was trafficked. They may not be calling themselves survivors necessarily, but they'll use the word trafficked or I was prostituted. I was forced to work at a strip club or whatever, which is such different language from just a few years ago where they didn't even have that language. So we've come a long way. That's good and way better than what I experienced. I work with women who are mentors and leaders in the movement, and some of them have been out for 30 years and didn't know they were survivors. So we really have come a long way, and I'm great, grateful to see that. But I was trafficked when I was 19. It was more of a boyfriend situation, right? He got me to love and trust him, really exploited my vulnerabilities. My main vulnerability was just looking for that love and attention and needing affection. Kind of like a lot of us, right? Humans were born needing that love and that unfortunately didn't happen for me because mm -hmm. I had parents that just really weren't emotionally or mentally available. My dad worked a lot to provide for the family and my mom struggled with mental illness. So just growing up really on my own mm -hmm. and never dreamt of becoming a prostitute. Obviously that wasn't on my dream list. I wanted to do so many other different things. I danced until I was like 15 years old. I loved pets and animals and was just really outgoing and had lots of friends and went to vocational high school, became a hairdresser. I had dreams, but just that deep void inside and um, met this guy at a local nightclub and he groomed and manipulated me into a situation. And before I knew it, I was trapped and with him for five years. Hmm. And I tried to exit so many times, but it was never successful. To you know, give you the short version of the story, it's almost like domestic violence, but on steroids. So you think about all the ways abusers trap their victims exactly like that but times 10 because of the shame of what's happening through the exploitation and finally got away from him after those five years and then I got addicted to drugs which is so so common that link between mm -hmm. substance abuse and trafficking indoor the commercial sex trade as a way to cope with all the trauma sure. I had been through and that just leads down a whole nother path a few years more trauma more unhealthy relationships and homelessness sleeping on park benches addicted to heroin and time would go on and finally um, got clean and sober in 2017. And I don't want to say, oh, I went into treatment once and got clean and sober. I mean, obviously, there's a big story up to that point. But finally, you know, after many attempts going in and out of treatment programs and stuff, I finally got it. I was done. I was tired. I knew I wasn't designed for that life. I knew I was never supposed to be a prostitute um, or a drug addict, but I couldn't find my way back home. You know, I didn't know how to get back to the girl that I was because I had been so drastically changed by my trafficking experience. And it was really hard to reconnect and figure that out. But through my recovery process, getting sober, really involved in AA and NA, 12-step programs, which led me on a spiritual path and led me into a small Christian church and really good, faithful, supportive people. And that's what helped me recover because they loved me very well, yeah. very unconditionally, helped me get a job. So I was a hairdresser. I always had that trade, which was really helpful. But I didn't have a clientele because I had been out of that uh, you know, field for so long. But a woman who went to that church owned her own real estate agency, and she encouraged me to get my Massachusetts real estate license, and it took me three times to pass the test. <laughs> but she just kept paying for it and encouraging me, and I finally passed, and I rented apartments for a good five years, and I did really well, and I learned how to put my life together, right, one step at a time, just found good, safe, supportive people. And got married, and that's a whole story, very complicated, very triggering to be vulnerable and <laughs> in a relationship with a man <laughs> and I've worked through a lot of that again have we've had children we have two kids together but we have you know five all together we're blended and yeah I mean here I am today 
homeschooling, driving a minivan, the director of a small nonprofit ministry. And I have one employee and about five survivors that we've come alongside over the years who now they're survivor leaders in our local community. We do a lot of advocacy work, speaking events, educating, mentoring, running groups in jails and halfway houses and giving out these bags filled with toiletries. And it's a way that we get the community to be involved because once they find out about trafficking and especially that link between substance abuse and homelessness, they want to be a part. So they donate all these items that go into the bags. And we give out well over a thousand bags a year to these vulnerable women or women in programs that have nothing. Think about coming out of jail, right? Being trafficked, having a drug addiction, being in jail for whatever reasons. And then you come out, you have nothing. You have no supports. What do you do to get yourself shampoo and conditioner? You go prostitute yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And then because you did that, you're going to feel so shameful, you're going to get high. And that's going to just start that whole cycle over again. So if we can intervene in that area, give them a bag, give them support, let them know there's a better way and walk alongside, we try to stop that cycle. Yeah. Written the book in the meantime, which is really cool. And it's all based off my old journal entries. While I was trafficked, I managed to keep a journal and put those all into the book with present day reflections to let people know we do recover. And this is the mind of a victim compared to the mind of a survivor and someone who's recovered. And... So forth. So yeah, there's your short version, I guess. I love that you went through that all because I think it shows so holistically that there is hope at the other side. And so often the focus is only on the trafficking situation. And here now you're showing the ways that you have invested in your healing journey, that other people have invested in you and come alongside you, and now you're able to give back. And so rather than always showing the cycle of revictimization, it shows what happens when communities really unite to come alongside survivors and walk shoulder to shoulder. It isn't about, oh, I'm doing all this great work as a community member. It's about shoulder to shoulder friendship and walking alongside and life with people. And I think that's what I love is that your story is a testimony to you having people who lived relationally with you. There are so many things in what you just said that I think that we would love to touch on. But I wanted to touch on one thing because Christy had a great conversation the other day with this one. (laughs) This is really fascinating. Would you like to share with our audience about your conversation? Yep, yep. This is a conversation that you never see coming that you think, I'm not ever bringing this up again. But this is now probably the fifth time I've talked about it in the last week because it takes a lot when you've worked in this industry for any statistic to surprise you. But this company reached out to us recently and they wanted to donate menstrual cups. Yes, everybody, we are talking about menstrual cups on our podcast. So they wanted to donate menstrual cups to the safe houses. And this woman starts explaining what they've done. Fabulous woman, fabulous data. And I said, why are you reaching out to the safe houses? And she said, well, we've been helping in third world countries. We do a lot of work in Africa. And then one of the nations there was looking to elevate its economic stability. And in order to do that, it had to make sure that it wasn't just elevating one part of its population. It had to actually address women in this population, which had typically been pretty neglected. And education was a way to make sure that they were helping women grow to reach a point of economic stability. And most of the women weren't making it past the third grade. And they started looking at the reasons. And 
menstrual health was actually part of it. And they realized that, you know, they were staying home from school or they were shunned and they couldn't come to school when they uh, were having their period. But then they came upon the most interesting data I think I've heard, which was they did research and they realized that one in 10 women in Africa were having transactional sex for a pad. And that it was something that they didn't have access to otherwise. And it was something that they were shunned from school if they didn't have something like that. And so they came stateside after the um, pandemic basically kicked them out of the nations that they were in in Africa. So she was in um, Southern California in the South Bay area. Started saying, well, I'm from this community. Let me evaluate it. Same thing. They were recognizing that there were one in 10 women South Bay, San Diego, that were having transactional sex or working with a guy who said, I will get all of your feminine products, but this is what I want from you. And so they were being trafficked as means to gain access to just basic hygiene. And you touched on that. And I think a lot of people don't understand how individuals end up getting trafficked, what those vulnerabilities are. And they look at it through their lens and say, I would never have sex with somebody for a pad or for shampoo or conditioner, but they don't look at it through the lens of what is all of the trauma that has been there? Like what are their baseline needs that they don't have access to? And what are they sometimes being forced to do just because in some ways the system's failing them? And I'm not a big system person. I don't believe that the system should fix all the problems, but they're, are churches who have the opportunity to engage to serve homeless populations. And they might be missing the fact that by providing those opportunities, it is really giving somebody the ability to make a decision about their own personal safety or personal health that wasn't there before. So talk a little bit about that. What you have seen, your vulnerability you said was somebody, you were a 19 year old girl looking for for love when you didn't have maybe some of those support systems at home. But with the survivors that you work alongside, what are some of those vulnerabilities that you see? Because I'm sure it runs the gamut. Some of the vulnerabilities is not talking about early childhood trauma. I mean, almost 90% of the women that I work with have that early childhood trauma as a vulnerability. But I would say that the current vulnerabilities would just be their drug addictions. They're in a very vulnerable state and they're trying to get sober. And that just, it's so hard. And what I've noticed is there's just lack of treatment. Massachusetts is good. There's a lot of detoxes and programs, state-run programs, and the women can get in those. But in New Hampshire, it's so different. It's just lack of resources. There are programs and detoxes, but not nearly enough. And a lot of them are privately owned, so they are very expensive, or you have to have the right kind of insurance. They don't necessarily take state-based insurance. And with COVID, things are even harder to come by and more stringent. And you know the same of what COVID has done so many um, different places. But really, it's that drug addiction they're trying to get clean. And you know, there's another vulnerability that I see clearly is these women who do get clean, right? They get into the program, they get sober, maybe they have six months, maybe a little longer. Sometimes they go into a sober house. So after the halfway house, they get a little, you know, get well job, they can start paying the rent and moving on to a sober living or sober house facility where they live with a bunch of other people who are in early recovery and they pay a weekly rent. But no one's again talking about the trauma, no one's talking about the exploitation. Sometimes they get a therapist who can help focus on that. 
but they're really alone in that area. And again, you just have to work on the sobriety. You have to learn how to stay sober and put your life together like that. It's kind of like compartmentalized a little bit. But then they're in these sober houses for a little bit. Now they start feeling more confident. They want to move on to the sober house. And guess what? So many of them find a boyfriend. And they move out into an apartment with a boyfriend. And maybe it goes well for a couple months if they're lucky. But what usually happens is a relapse and they get right back into the situation. The boyfriend ends up being abusive. One of them ends up relapsing. You know, she goes back into the prostitution. He exploits that. Yeah, it's so frustrating. It is so hard to keep these women on the path without getting super distracted and ending up back in unhealthy relationships and situations. Right, and I think you touched on a few key pieces there. I mean, first, the lack of safe housing that really comes around with all the programmatic needs of a survivor to help shepherd them through that process, but then also meaningful economic empowerment opportunities. If they don't have the ability, like you had somebody who wanted to invest in you and said, I'm going to help you get that real estate license, not once, not twice, but three times and stuck by you. That's huge. And that's personal mentorship and living life with somebody. But that isn't always available to every survivor. And so where do you see those big gaps, like those opportunities for either communities, churches, whoever that might be to step in and think about how economic empowerment and safe housing are two of the biggest needs for adult survivors? Yeah. And again, personal relationship and mentoring and walking alongside, that is a great thing. There are so many people out there that are business owners or entrepreneurs, whatever it is, and they can just offer that support and that skill set to these women. It would be so meaningful and so beneficial to them. I I work with one girl now who's 25 and she says to me, I don't want to go work at Dunkin' Donuts. It's super triggering. You know, like that's where everyone sends us, you know, for our first like get well job to Dunkin' Donuts. And but it's just too triggering. I don't want to do all that work and work so hard for minimum wage, <laughs> you know, and that's so yeah. hard for these girls. And I get that. And that wasn't for me either. So I was so grateful I had that trade to fall back as a hairdresser. And then again, this woman to invest in, in me. And I was a real estate agent because then when you're, you're a real estate agent, you're your own boss, essentially, right? Like I did work along with people and I had a broker who was over me, but I made my own schedule. I did things and I didn't feel controlled. And I liked that. A lot of these women do feel that way, but so we're not offering them those meaningful opportunities. So it is so important. That is a great way for people to get involved and walk alongside. It is. It's, you know, I always tell people in an audience, like, be a big sister, be a big brother to youth to help prevent trafficking. But these adult women who are coming out need mentors, too. They need, you know, support and someone to walk alongside, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things you mentioned earlier was coming out and having a church that wrapped around you and people who saw you, you know, we talk to people all the time that they say, Oh my gosh, I am so heartbroken by this issue. What can I do? What would you say to people who, you know, whether it's in a drug and alcohol recovery program or in a church, meet a survivor, what were the best tips that you would have for them to walk along a survivor in a meaningful way? Yeah, just to be non-judgmental, be safe, supportive, be honest with your own story, <laughs> right? Like the problem is there is that when sometimes we come into a church setting, everyone seems perfect. 
<laughs> right? Everyone seems like they have it all together. I remember particularly one church I went to, it wasn't, it was just for a Bible study. And there was like a hundred and something, 200 women there. It was a big Bible study. And then they broke us off into small groups. And no one knew my story at that point, right? I still wasn't talking about it. It was still pushed down, but obviously I knew where I had come from, but I was a new Christian. And I wanted to look like all these other women. I thought I had to marry a pastor, be a homeschool mom of like 10, drive a, a Range Rover, or, you know, like these women lived in like really nice, affluent, expensive areas in my, my surrounding cities. So that's what I thought you had to look like to be a Christian and to make it. But they, so there was a lack of vulnerability. There was a lack of being transparent. Everyone kind of had these perfect lives they look like. But the other women that I went to my church with was more acceptable and I don't want to say just blue collar, right? But they, some were in recovery, some were honest with their stories. You know, one woman had been married a couple times and, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like, just be honest with your story and your brokenness too, because you tell everybody in church I was a prostitute. Like, who wants to admit that? <laughs> you know, in a church right. where everyone's perfect, like. So that, does, that doesn't go well. But if you can just be meeting people where they're at and being honest with your own stuff, it really opens the door big time. No, I think authenticity is the key to breaking through. So many of the stereotypes, so many of the kind of beliefs of like either how you need to look as a mentor or how you need to look as a survivor coming into that relationship. Like at the end of the day, there may be some mentorship there, but it's built on the basis of trust and that's built through you know, authentic transparency of who you are and where you come from and that we all are broken and that we have opportunities to improve in all of our areas of life, whatever that might be. And so I think that is just so much of the heart behind those who want to serve, you know, and that's beautiful. I guess for you, what is a myth that you would want to kind of shatter in the current landscape about trafficking? Myth. Oh gosh, there are so many. <laughs> I guess this rescue, maybe it's not a myth, but the rescue mentality, like it's really hard for non-survivors to understand what really goes on. And they just want to come in and rescue and take you away and, you know, shake you and say, why don't you just leave? Why don't you just get it? Come on, Jesus is right here. What are you waiting for? You know, it's just such a journey and it's such a process. And you have to be able to accept the survivor right where they're at <laughs> you know even if that means they're going back to an unhealthy relationship even if that means they're relapsing so yeah I can't think of a myth so I'm sorry but I, I just think of this this rescue kind of mentality that I think is even more prevalent in the church because Christians you know know the answer they know the way right and they're well-meaning of course but it's just such a journey and it's so hard yeah I don't know if you've seen the series the chosen that came out the beginning of last year what i love it's so good but what i personally loved about it was that from that church response perspective it really showed christ meeting mary where she was at and to your point he didn't come in with a savior complex yet the church walks around with a savior complex not always understanding that we have been saved not to take on that idea that we are now a savior. And so I just love that if we were to actually respond to individuals exactly the way they portrayed it in there through just love and friendship and um, saying, I see you and I'm here regardless of whether you're in a valley or on a mountain, like 
that is the response that we're called to, not to, to your point, to come in and say, I am here to rescue you and I'm going to make sure you're going to be okay because no, we can't, none of us can control that. All we can do is help be there to walk alongside and be that support. And I think that's really what you're speaking to is how do we break through that savior complex in the church a little bit? Right, because then people end up becoming projects. So you think about the life when they were in the exploitation, they became products, right? And that's mm-hmm. exactly what we don't want to, we don't want to turn them from a product into a project. Right. Because then it ends up feeling oh, so good. Yeah. Right, right. It's about the relationship. I heard a survivor say really early on as we were in this work was we were talking about the safe houses and the power that they had and the whole point of that seminar was talking about elevating the standards of survivor care she got up at the end and she said look i'm going to tell you it doesn't matter how shiny your program is because it is the love that you pour out that is going to break through those chains that have held survivors captive in the trauma bonds, in the mental captivity. And love is the thing to pour out above anything else. And I loved that because when we talk to programs who are looking at launching, their heart is in the right place. They want to launch the biggest and the best place out there because gosh darn it, these survivors deserve it. And we do not disagree. But it's that, hey, that might be a 10 year vision. But you know what you can do today? You can love the snot out of a survivor in your world and let them know that they have dignity and value and worth as a human being, not as a commodity. And whether you're somebody listening to this from a faith perspective or not from a faith perspective, we all still have the ability to see people as worthy of time, of effort, of love. And that's a decision that we get to make. And so I appreciate how you encourage the church and others to, again, not take a survivor on as a project, but as a friend, as somebody to walk alongside and do life with. So what is one message that you would want fellow survivors to hear? You know, we've talked about a lot about what we would say to other people, but what would you want other survivors to hear right now? Other survivors. I mean, well, it just depends on where they are in their journey, right? Mm. Um, some are fresh out, some are a few years out. But I guess the message is just the same. It's about finding your identity and finding who you are and who you belong to, you know, and, and what really the plan is for your life and finding your dreams and your goals and getting involved with other survivors and having that survivor sisterhood is so important because. We get it. We've been there. Your mentors are great. Those women who haven't walked down this path are great to have in your life. Like early on in my recovery, I remember looking up to these women, especially in the church, and wondering, how do I become like them? I would pray and I'd say, God, please take away the rough edges. File those rough edges down. And one woman who became very dear to me would always say, you're a lady. Act like it. And it's, it's okay. She would teach me these amazing things because you're just coming off the street and you're coming from these situations just so rough and not knowing how to act and just having women that through my life that had again struggled with their own things and they're very honest about that but not exactly the same life I lived but they knew their identity they knew where they belonged they knew who they were and they just walked in such grace and such love it was just amazing that was really important and it's good and I think survivors need that and then also having that community of other survivor sisters who have gone through it because sometimes you just need to call someone who gets it 
and you need to go on a rant and have someone say, yep, I get it, I know, and it gets better. And this is how we can walk through this together. So I think it's really important for survivors to have that. You couldn't be more right. And I love the way that you view that through so many different lenses because the message is different depending on where people are coming from and the season that they're in. And I think that's what I personally have thoroughly enjoyed about just this work is walking along survivors, whether they are still in it and still trying to find that way out that they're navigating through to those that we get like you, who we get to see the ways that you're pouring back in. Like it's just seeing that this is when you choose to work in this issue and to really engage, it's usually walking alongside people for a lifetime but then you get to see all of the growth, all of the miracles. And I always love, somebody told me like, as you work in here, you develop new gears and you develop those extra gears that'll make you go the extra distance. And I think everybody who works in the trafficking industry has developed that over time and continues to develop it. So as we sign off, is there any other messages that you would like to leave with people? Where can they find you if they would like to learn more about your nonprofit, all of those great things? Yeah, sure. You can follow us on Facebook, Jasmine Grace Outreach, and the website is jasminegrace.org. You can find the book on my website and also on Amazon. And please feel free to contact me through the website if you have any questions or you want to connect or if there's a survivor out there that wants to connect and needs support, or if you are a service provider and you're working with a victim that needs some extra love and support, I'd be glad to lend a hand, of course. So please reach out. As we close, William Wilberforce once said, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. We've all had defining moments in our lives where we faced a choice to either engage or look the other way. Make your choice now to engage. Subscribe to our podcast for future content involving how you can make a difference in stopping trafficking by 2030.